This is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time here in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. Racism is a public health issue, a violence that uses all its capacity to completely consume its prey whole. Racism commits harm, and the way it inflicts asthma, diabetes, and hypertension by starving communities of grocery stores and decorating every sidewalk with nutrition deficit gas stations instead, racism commits harm and the way it poisons the water and the air our children consume, all while leaving us to fit the bills, offering nothing but empty pockets where health coverage should be. In America, the so-called land of the free, black people have been categorized as the prey and racism our relentless predator. And though we humor them by calling these injustices specific to the environment, we know that racism as an institution could not survive with unchained land. Which is why environmental justice seeks to be the intersection between land liberation, food autonomy, racial justice, and anti-capitalism. Environmentalism is a Southern Black radical tradition that's been touched and passed down by the tender hands of Black and Indigenous peoples. Environmentalism is our revolution, our abolition, our moral responsibility. It is our ultimate solution. Environmentalism is our prerogative. And this week on Race Capital, we learn from the Black advocates who know this best, who are working to free our food, communities, and people from oppressive systems. First, we talk with Juniper Battle, educator and earth worker from Richmond, Virginia, about Black farm work, food justice, and land reparations. Then we hear from Andrea Miller, co-executive director of People Demanding Action, from her home in Caroline County to talk about Virginia's legacy on environmental racism, as well as the truth about the Rappahannock Electric Cooperative, one of the largest rural cooperatives in the nation. Next, Umpal founder Queen Zakia Shabazz discusses the lead poisoning problem in Richmond, Virginia, and we reflect on our past governor's attempts at correcting racial disparities. We continue our conversation with water organizer Amaris Mitchell from Newark Water Coalition to talk about water justice and the unique danger of black capitalists. Lastly, we end with remarks from Danville, Virginia native and former candidate for delegate Eric Stamps to talk about the impacts environmental racism has on public health. Stay tuned and listen closely. And I want to acknowledge the land that we are on. This is Powhatan territory so-called Richmond, and I give thanks to those relatives for their stewardship. And so I'll introduce myself. Um, I am Juniper. Um, I identify as Black, Maroon, Queer, Non-Binary, Earthworker, and Educator, and I use they, them pronouns. So I do Earthwork. I have taught after-school gardening for about a year. I've always worked in schools. Um, my mama worked in Richmond Public Schools for all my life. So I automatically just um, stepped into that work, working at her schools as tutoring or as a teacher's aide. And when I first discovered after school gardening, that's when I was like, okay, this is what I need to be doing. Because in general, I've always loved being outside. I don't like being in school buildings because it's so, there's so much policing. 
and surveillance and it's not an autonomous space versus like what a community garden can be. And so I really lean into food justice work while I'm working with youth and children. And that looks like, for example, I taught in East Oakland at um, Coliseum International. And East Oakland is also experiencing food apartheid, um, so-called food desert. And a lot of times, you know, we would talk about how far they would have to travel to get their food with their families, uh, which was at least like 20 minutes away. And in most cities, we know that there are a lot of folks depending on corner stores for food. And, and so in those classes, you know, we would talk about that and get deep into our culturally relevant foods um, that were relevant to our cultures, Black and Brown and Indigenous cultures. And we would cook those foods in our classes. And we would do things like make smoothies. And one class we made pesto. Children and youth love cooking. And I really enjoyed that. And so that's how I tie in my earthwork with my work in the school system in a more abolitionist way. And I have volunteered on a number of community gardens in Richmond. I volunteered at gardens in New Orleans with some Black elders and at Soulfire Farm. And I also do a lot of earthwork with my dad as well. The privilege of farming and gardening with my dad has been so important. My father grew up on a tenant farm where he and my grandparents worked as sharecroppers uh, picking tobacco in North Carolina. Um, and it's been so incredible to witness him farm and garden on his own terms at his own will and it's been incredible to reclaim that work along with him. Um, and it's also been so vital in helping me remember who I am. For me, it is essential for us to reclaim the dignity of working the land and uplifting our ancestors in a way that is liberating them too. This is also why I love exposing children and youth to earthwork. Um, when I'm teaching gardening during after-school programs, it is truly amazing to witness students' curiosity. I love their joy when they see what they can cultivate. And I've had students save their seeds from their snacks or food during lunchtime and give them to me during our after-school programs to plant. And that to me is like one of the most precious gifts I've experienced in life. And so I think that says a lot about how much healing and collecting people with the land can be done. So can you kind of break it down for us, treat us like we're your students. Can you talk to us about earthwork and farming as a Black tradition, how you would explain it to Black youth and get them involved in this work? So in 1920, 14% of land-owning farmers were Black. Today, that 14% has dropped to 1%. 1% of farms are controlled by Black people, which is a loss of 14 million acres. And these are the peoples who physically built the agricultural system of this country. So, you know, systemic racism and centuries of oppression has created such a disproportionate scale of Black land ownership and Indigenous land ownership. And I strongly believe that large-scale reparations and land redistribution is so important. But because of years of oppression and land-based trauma, as a result of enslavement, as we learn in schools, sharecropping, tenant farming, and convict leasing, our communities often find it difficult to return to the land. I can't even tell you how many Black elders look at me funny when I tell them I want to farm. 
which, you know, I understand. I overstand, as my friend would say, (laughs) when we talk about the ways enslaved Africans built this country off of their backs, pressing down on their knuckles to pull themselves up from tilled mounds. That type of survival technique is understandable and being hesitant to go back to the land because oftentimes that has been confused with the oppression itself. But I think, you know, it's also super, super, super critical to talk about Fannie Lou Hamer and George Washington Carver and how they transformed our food system for poor and working class Black folks in the South. Fannie Lou Hamer started a farming cooperative model in the Mississippi Delta called Freedom Farms, where she would raise piglets and distribute pigs to households in the cooperative. And these pigs were then used to feed a family for a whole year. And, you know, that's a huge deal when you're Black and poor and working class in in the rural South. Yeah, and I think that just needs to be emphasized. That's a perfect example of mutual aid and how Black folks have been doing mutual aid. Can you talk to us about land redistribution, land liberation, and reparations? Can you talk to us about what advocates like yourself mean by phrases such as that? We are stewards of the land. um, And when we talk about land liberation, we are talking about freeing the land from white supremacist heteropatriarchal systems from decades of exploitation and abuse. And as Malcolm X says, revolution is based on the land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. So, you know, I wish more white folks would just step down and divest from their generational wealth that was built off of the backs of Black people and stolen land. Um, I very recently liberated land in so-called Waverly, Virginia, not away territory. And I'm one of the few people that's been given land reparations. And that's something that I've always strongly believed was possible. And that's something my ancestors and my grandmother's grandmother's grandmothers saw through. And it's not easy work. I'm on a reparations map through Soul Fire Farm. And you can go to Soul Fire Farm's website and go to one, go to their links and see the reparations map where um, it's a Google map with little pins that you can click on and see what folks are up to, see what they need, whether that's a tractor or some funds to sustain their lands. And, you know, I've had people message me. And when I say people, I mean white people with money uh, message me saying that they want to contribute to this land project that I dream of. And I've also, you know, within that, I've had people be inconsistent of like, I don't know, not messaging me back once they hear what the work is, Mm. you know, or um, I've had like a white person change their mind and like redistribute it somewhere else. And so it's, you need patience, definitely. And then also just like straight up aggression. (laughs) Because it's, you know, it's so important, um, this work. Mm. And I've talked to folks um, about land reparations and some of the feedback and response that I've gotten has just been sad. Um, and I know with one friend, like, I, I, we were having a conversation and I was like, I'm going to go back to Virginia and I'm going to build a sanctuary for Kitty BIPOC folks. And I'm going to do this through land reparations. And when he heard land reparations, he was like, well, I'm not even going to hold my breath about that. And for me, I was like, okay, that's that thing, you know? Right. And, and so that's what I mean, you know, when I say I think we need to be more aggressive, just about large-scale reparations and land distribution. And that also means decolonizing and calling out some of these community gardens 
So I'm talking about how a lot of these community gardens that are popping up in cities are oftentimes very performative and are used as a tool for gentrification. So um, yeah, I just encourage white people with wealth to step down. And especially if we want to continue to live on this earth, we have to give it back to the peoples who are of this earth. And so with that, I also want to express my solidarity with the Mashpee Wampanoag peoples in so-called Massachusetts, who are in the process as we speak of losing the last of their territory. Uh, these are the same peoples who welcomed the so-called pilgrims and were present at the first Thanksgiving. And so the Mashpee Wampanoag peoples have been occupying the same region for over 12,000 years. So if folks want to find, you know, more info and ways to stand in solidarity with them, which I, I highly suggest, check out the hashtag StandWithMashpee and hashtag Mashpee and Wampanoag. And you can also Google it. There's a petition going around that's advocating for that land to continue to be preserved. So yeah, find, find the uh, petition on Google and, and, and sign that. Jennifer, what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt white supremacy? So I grew up in a middle-class home um, and I have a college education. I am English speaking, I'm able-bodied and I can be cis-presenting. Um, and I haven't directly been impacted by the criminal injustice system. So I use my privilege to advocate for folks who are incarcerated. And I volunteered with Critical Resistance, worked with the New Orleans Workers Group, and I am also a song member, um, Virginia chapter. So in general, I use whatever leverage I have to keep communities and my siblings as safe as possible. Lastly, if you just want to let folks know where they can follow you and the work that you do. Uh, most of my social media stuff is on Instagram right now. And you can follow me on Wetland Maroon. So that's W-E-T-L-A-N-D underscore Maroon, M-A-R-O-O-N on Instagram. I am Andrea Miller. My pronouns are she, her, they, them, and I work on elections. I specialize in turning out community of color voters in red or voter suppression states. So my organization is called Center for Common Ground, and we are a 501c3 organization, and we're based in Virginia. You can keep up with me personally on PD Action. I actually have a 501c4 called People Demanding Action, and that has both a Facebook page, facebook.com slash PD Action, and you can also follow PD Action on Twitter. I'm involved with the Green New Deal, and the Virginia Poor People's Campaign is working on mutual organizing cooperatives. So our mission just got a heck of a lot broader because too many people don't belong to a rural electric cooperative. But there's a whole lot of people that need mutual aid, and some of that mutual aid might come in the form of mortgage relief. We're here in the South. I know that you've done a lot of this work, so can you just give a little brief intro to folks as to Virginia's legacy on environmental racism? Oh, Virginia's legacy on environmental racism is deep, and it is long. 
when you look at um, the uranium mining, when you look at where the landfills are, when you look at the stolen land to build the nuclear power plant, and now when you look at pipelines and compressor stations, Virginia has not changed her policies over the centuries. It is still, if it is native land, ours for the taking. If it is historic black land, ours for the taking. And that legacy continues. So how have Black organizers such as yourself been fighting back against these racist policies? And what work has been done since this election to really combat some of these more harmful things that are going on? Well, one of the things that's happening is the environmental community or the green community now has a whole new component. They didn't exactly invite us in, but we're here anyway. So we have the environmental justice community, and that would be your community of color folks, the people where whatever harmful thing the petrochemical companies are going to do, it is going to be in our neighborhoods because our neighborhoods are, quote, the poorer neighborhoods, and they also assume the neighborhoods with no pull among the politicians. So if you're poor and you're not smart and you don't have any big important political friends, then the feeling is you're a sitting duck and they can just roll right over you. Union Hill was one heck of a surprise. So well, let's I talk about Union Hill a little bit. Well, Union Hill is in Buckingham County and Union Hill is a freedman's community. That means this was a community that was started by the slaves who were freed from the plantation. So when we look at history and we look at the end of the Civil War, slavery no longer exists. You had the former slaves who had two schools of thought. One was, let me get out of here and go further north where they never did this craziness. And then you had the other school of thought of, well, the big craziness is over and this is what I know. So I can't see going a few hundred miles into the unknown where theoretically it could even be worse. I know this form of oppression and I'm willing to fight it. That's when you had this great migration. Some of it went west, some of it went north, and some of it said, well, we're going to just take our chances right here. And those were the freedmen communities. So some of those families in Union Hill had been on that land for five generations. So there was major, major history there. 
And who were the major aggressors in that situation? Um, uh, Dominion Energy, the corporation that everybody loves to hate. Again, you have Dominion Energy saying, we've got an opportunity to make a lot of money on fracked gas, but because we are fracking this gas in land that is sort of leading up into the hills, but they had no intention of using it in Virginia, so they had to push it all the way to the ocean. Well, once you get out of the foothills, Virginia gets very, 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 very flat. Liquid, oil, whatever it is, gas, doesn't just automatically flow downhill when there's no hill. So they needed a compressor station. So they came up with the idea, let's put a compressor station out in the country where the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and another existing pipeline can meet, and then we'll push their product to the ocean from there. And they told the community, we're going to be building a small to medium-sized compressor station. Well, when the community actually saw the plans, it was one of the largest compressor stations in the world. And the problem with compressor stations is you've got fracked gas, which is highly volatile, coming in and then being shoved under pressure down a series of pipelines. Now, these pipelines coming out of the foothill, some of this territory is rugged terrain. Pipelines break, pipelines explode. The Fracked material comes into the compressor station under a tremendous amount of pressure. They don't manage that pressure properly. The compressor station can explode, spewing out all this product. Again, we've had these explosions happen, not so much with the compressor stations, but with the pipelines where people have died and it has just been horrific. These things are like a bomb going off in your neighborhood. And some of the people in Union Hill lived 150 yards from where they planned to build this compressor stations. And a lot of these people were older people. And again, if you know anything about fracking and why New York State and other states have tried to ban it, it tends to poison the water, it tends to poison the air. And so when you've got a lot of older people, this was really going to start producing some major health issues. And if you know anything at all about Southern states and rural communities, you know they generally don't have hospitals there. You know, two hours away, you've got to go to Richmond or maybe go an hour away and go to Charlottesville. So if something does happen, there's no infrastructure there to deal with the magnitude of what can happen if something goes wrong in that compressor station or in the pipeline. It just doesn't exist. So let's uh, 
talk about rural communities for a second here because in Richmond, we're kind of used to our elected officials selling us down the river for corporate interests, specifically for Dominion's interests. But I think what doesn't get a lot of attention is the way that Black folks and marginalized folks in rural communities are really affected by energy bullies as well. Most people, when they think of electricity, they always think of the big giant in Virginia, Dominion. Well, if you live in rural Virginia, you don't get your energy from Dominion at all. And that is because in the 1930s, when they were Virginia Energy and the rural communities wanted to get electrified, they basically said, no, we're not going to go out here and put up infrastructure to electrify 12 houses in a mile. That is not profitable. So President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, we are going to electrify America, all of it. And that includes rural communities. And so what he did was they created this thing that they called a rural electric cooperative, where citizens in a rural community got together and they elected leadership who would manage the nonprofit business of supplying electricity to the community. And rural electric cooperatives were born. There are 13 of them in Virginia. I am a member owner of the largest rural electric cooperative in Virginia, Rappahannock Electric Cooperative, and they are the second largest uh, rural electric cooperative in the country. So they're huge. In the old days, remember, these were farmers and people who owned the general store who all got together and for the benefit of the community, they electrified it. Some rural electric cooperatives, when telephones came out, said, you know what, the big telephone companies aren't coming out here to give us telephone service. We're going to figure out how to do that telephone thing. And now the big deal is rural broadband. And that is really critical now that we've got kids home from school, people trying to work from home. If you don't have good broadband, you're just totally out of luck. And so that's where you can really start seeing the rural electric cooperatives that have not lost their meaning or why they should be here. Central Virginia Electric Cooperative, they are providing broadband to their customers because they realized it was important. The federal government had grants and loan programs. They took advantage of that. The state of Virginia had grants and they had loan programs. They took advantage of those. And then you look at something like REC, the largest in Virginia, and they said, you know what, now we're not going to do broadband, and we're not going to do broadband because, gosh darn it, they didn't guarantee that there would be no competitor 
So we won't make the investment. Now, again, remember, rural electric cooperatives are supposed to be run and decisions should be made by the member owners. Well, at REC, that's not exactly what happens. You've got a board of directors, many of them have been sitting there 20, 30 years, and they've got a nice little gig where they keep re-electing themselves, and they don't want to do broadband, they don't want to pay out or even tell people what their capital credits are. Remember, rural electric cooperatives are nonprofits. They are not allowed to make a profit. They are not profit-making corporations paying dividends to shareholders. Everybody that pays a bill to a rural electric cooperator is a member owner, and we all have one share. They've even decided when they have board meetings, nope, don't want to have the board meeting either. So if you live urban, you probably, if you're in central Virginia, have Dominion. If you live rural, you have Rappahannock Electric Cooperative, or you might have uh, Central Virginia Electric Cooperative. Those are the two that are literally right outside the Richmond area. But there is no energy choice. What do you think is the importance of having not only Black voices, but Southern voices be the center of climate change and environmental justice conversations? Well, it's really critical. Black voices, and I'm Black Cherokee, so I'm going to say uh, Native American or Indian voices as well. Because historically, it has been Black and Native land that has been appropriated for the most unhealthy, cancer-causing, pollution-spewing things that petrochemical companies can come up with. Again, they're always in our neighborhood. Now, the argument they're going to make is, well, land is cheaper there. Well, yes, land is cheaper there, but when you look at the communities that live there, the communities are poorer, the communities have less access to health care than wealthier communities would have, and these communities are the most vulnerable. So when you look at the pipelines, they always promise, oh, there's going to be jobs. Well, the part they forget to say is, but not for the people who live here because they're specialty jobs. So we'll be bringing people in from Utah. Thank you very much. All right, my last question, Andrea. What is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt white supremacy? Ooh, all right. Um, One of my privileges is that I am bold. I am outspoken and I'm old and I'm evil. And I've gotten to the point where I would call myself a red hat lady. And I don't need to miss words. I can tell somebody, look, I can tell you what I'm here for. I need 30 seconds of your time. Here, you can look at your watch. Am I on the clock? Here it is. You know, no foreplay, just boom. This is what I want. (laughs) Foreplay is overrated. You're listening to WRIR. LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And this is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac. 
Well, good Tuesday. I'm Queen Zakia Shabazz, and I'm from Earth. I was born in South Carolina almost 60 years ago. My pronouns are me, we, and us. And I can be followed at um, United Parents Against Lead, www.upal.org. We also have a, a Twitter, which is UPAL National, and on Facebook as well. And also, I can be found at www.baejc.org, which, uh, which is, our, um, is another website for the Virginia Environmental Justice Collaborative, where I serve as coordinator with 32 other wonderful environmental justice and green and academic organizations and community-based organizations. So I serve as coordinator and I'm also the founder of United Parents Against Lead, which was founded about 25 years ago when my son was poisoned by lead um, in an old building, old house we were renting in Richmond, Virginia. And that um, prompted the founding of the organization, which has grown to become a national organization, advocating on behalf of um, lead poisoned children and their families. And we look to make sure that the family has, um, has resources and um, access to education, a medical um, access, and um, of course, um, safe and affordable housing. And we've um, worked over the years to educate parents, educate the community on lead and to make sure that, um, you know, children can live in a clean and safe environment. So we actually go in and remediate homes of lead when we have um, funding to do so. I mean, can you talk to us more about lead poisoning and the effect that it has on communities and children? Oh, yes. Well, lead poisoning causes permanent and irreversible brain damage. So a child that is poisoned un unfortunately doesn't bounce back and, and, and cannot, um, you know, it, imp it impedes their development. Um, communities, especially uh, low-income, divested communities are, are pretty much left to fend for themselves um, because there's the old the housing that's run down. There's um, slumlords that that don't either don't have the means or don't have the care to fix the properties up so that these families have a safe place to live and that we're not moving from one contaminated environment to the next. And so um, a lot of our communities have just become um, really distressed and the properties have been allowed to just lie dormant without any kind of maintenance and which leaves very uh, little choices for for low-income families that may be at, you know, at risk of um, living with lead poison and other environmental hazards. When it comes to the response from elected officials and how they've dealt with lead poisoning and the effect that it has on folks in the community, what has been your experience with that? Uh, it's sometimes kind of hit and miss. <laughs> you know, um, We've been talking with local elected officials, city council members, sometimes you have them on your side, sometimes not. Of course, publicly, all of them act as if they are on your side. You know, I remember going to a city council meeting years ago and taking uh, maybe like 50 pairs of shoes that represented lead poisoned children in the city of Richmond. 
And we also at the same time gave the council members a card to sign saying whether or not they supported children living in, in safe housing and, and fighting lead poison. And, and, and publicly, again, all of them agreed to do so. They returned the postcard, but then individually, you, you could not get, you know, get them to spring to action to do anything to actually protect the children. And that brings to mind, um, you know, our, our governors, um, our past Governor McAuliffe, that as he was leaving office, his last official act, I believe, was to sign an executive order into place that created the Virginia Council on Environmental Justice. And that has been now continued with our present governor, Northam, who recently also um, codified it at the behest of the Virginia Environmental Justice Collaborative, our organization, asking that the council be codified and put in, you know, put in the state budget. So now they won't have to be renewed every year it will be an entity that will be there. And um, we advocated for the council so that we would have a place for communities to have a voice and to be able to bring whatever environmental justice or racial justice issues that, that we are facing across the Commonwealth. What do you think environmental justice looks like on stolen land, on oppressed land for colonized folks in the South? Well, it looks um, it looks very bleak. It looks as if um, it's a trend that may be silently continuing and will continue if we don't raise our voices and point it out and, and speak out against it. You know, it looks like, uh, especially in the midst of this um, pandemic and you know with COVID nineteen, um, as they you know, I'm so tired of hearing that our people are you know, or, or more impacted, disproportionately impacted, you know, that has just become an overused word because this is not just the ev first evidence of that. We've always been disproportionately impacted by anything that, that comes down. So COVID-19 is no different, you know, so to just to hear um, some of our leaders saying that, I'm, I'm just so, so sick of hearing it because that, that's not an excuse, you know, and that's not something that's where the onus is on us it's, it's that way because we've been been behind, you know, we've been lagging, we've been overlooked, we've been marginalized, we've been divested. Our communities are not disadvantaged, they're divested. You know, you intentionally pull the resources and pull the funding away from these communities. So how else could we be but disproportionately impacted, you know? So that's, that's how I feel about it. And that's as far as the land grab, and, and people not wanting to share the power, not wanting to share the wealth or the resources, and you know, it, just choosing to ignore the facts of how we got into the predicament that we're in and what can be done to, to turn things around. We also on the show like to ask our guests about privilege. So I would like to ask you right now, what's your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt white supremacy? Okay, I would have to say um, my privilege would be my voice, and I use that best um, through through my writing to um, it's just to point out the, the disparities, to point out um, the racial biases, implicit bias that, that we're faced with every day. So through my voice and, and through the use of the pen, as they say, the, the pen is mired in the sword. So I, I, I put that to use um, to the advantage of my people and um, you know my community.
Okay, so um, my name is Amaris Mitchell. I'm from Jersey and I'm a water organizer with the North Water Coalition. My pronouns are she, her, um, and you can follow for updates around the North Water Coalition at Clean Water Number 4 Newark on Instagram. And um, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter as well um, at Clean Water for Newark, I think under the same handle or the Newark Water Coalition. So let's just hop right into it and start off by talking to folks about the work that the North Water Coalition is doing around water justice and maybe just touching on what that means. So what that looks like is filling the gap between narratives. The issue with what we experience from North to Flint is the information or like the stories that people or stories of what people are going through not being amplified. So thankfully, um, you know, you doing what you do, interviewing people, interviewing organizers to talk about what we do really helps because this isn't stuff that you see in the mainstream media or stuff that might be coming from public officials. So a part of what we do is try to advocate on behalf of our community members, um, particularly when it comes to the lead in the water. So we definitely build with people from all over the globe, but specifically we do work in North New Jersey because there has been a lead crisis issue in our water for we don't know how long. And um, it first like came to the front or the forefront of people's minds in 2016 when families or like people who were connected to schools and hospitals and dialysis centers received notice that there were higher lead levels um, in their water lines or water service lines. So with that, um, it wasn't until two years later that the city confirmed that there was an issue with the water. So we were kind of um, organizing and advocating saying like you know we want us we want testing to be done um, not just in our schools and hospitals and dialysis centers but in people's homes and for um, you know just for for somebody to say that it's happening and for, for the information to get out so one we fill that gap of the narrative of what information is there, how you can test your water or that you should test your water to see if it has lead in it. We get water filters and bottles out to people. And that's a lot of what we've been doing as of late is distributing water bottles to people. But because of COVID, um, at least in New Jersey, there's been limits and restrictions on how much water people can buy. And we're not, you know, at the time we weren't exactly like a nonprofit or a, a business basically, but a group of individuals that are coming together as a coalition to advocate on behalf of others. So as individuals, it was hard for us to try to buy water, to look out for people or to continue the distributions that we did before COVID. So we have been speaking with other people, doing like seminars and things like that to educate people on what it is that we're going through. And also um, fundraising for us to be able to get water out to people and to continue to, to amplify that uh, this is an issue that has been going on for a while. How can we visualize water justice? What do you think that looks like for colonized folks? What does that look like for colonized folks, especially in cities and municipalities? I would say what it looks like is for people to not just accept 
what the media or officials tell them, but to try to do research themselves, to look into what's going on around them, to do their Googles, as people say, or to talk to their neighbors about what they know and try, try to compile information together, to try to be scientific in the information that we gather, where it's like, we know the land. Like I'm from East Orange, which is a neighboring community out of Newark. And most of my life, people talked about how Newark had really clean water while East Orange water was dirty. But that was just a narrative that we heard. So instead of just accepting that narrative, you know, going after um, your own information, doing that research and organizing with people to do the research together to tap the people who are supposed to be responsible for protecting us and if they don't protect us then looking out for each other so that's something that us water organizers a part of the north water coalition have been doing where we just you know found a way to get our funds together get the word out to also uh, work with people from other areas like flint detroit to talk about what methods they're using and how we could work together so also thinking outside of your community, but thinking nationally and globally and connecting with other people who are fighting against what's going on. But really what it is, is that a lot of these politicians, I understand that they have so many things that are coming at them because our infrastructure in general is crumbling and not being treated the best way that it could be, but we're still living here and we still have to deal with it. So having to take responsibility for the lives that we live and also for others around us. I know we before we uh, we were talking about the intersection between environmental injustice, I guess we would call it, and mm-hmm. Black progressives, Black progressive leadership, as you're talking about. What's been Nork's experience with action on this issue uh, from elected officials? It's pretty difficult where people think whenever certain societal issues come up, like recently we saw what happened with Ahmad Arbery and Sean Reed, what happened, you know, even with Nina Pop, that was a Black trans woman um, that was also stabbed, or with Breonna Taylor, who was a Black woman, I believe, that was also killed by the police. And usually people say, well, if we have Black people in place, these situations won't happen. But that's not so Black and white. And we see that as a case with North New Jersey, where we do have a Black mayor, we have Black city officials or people in place, but they just can't service us in the way that we might want them to. It's not good for business. And that's what a lot of politicians are in place to do to protect business. So oftentimes looking out for people doesn't align with looking out for the profits of the state or the federal government. Or aside from that, we, because we as organizers, as the North Border Coalition, we put a lot of pressure on uh, city and state officials. We were able to get federal and state funding for the North service lines. But it's, it's a shame that you have to wait for that type of thing to happen, for us to put pressure on them. It should just be happening immediately. And if it was a case where it's not just one person or a set group of officials in charge, but people in charge, it would have it would have been got fixed because it's our lives, you know. Um, so anyway, that's that's also to say that sometimes it's hard to communicate with people and say, hey, we know that you have love for this politician who looks good for the city, but they actually lied to us or they don't have our best interests at heart, and people. They don't want to trust that or hear that because they believe that this person looks like me or they're part of my neighborhood or they've gained my trust. 
But if you look at even a video that the city of Newark posted about one resident who um, was talking about the lead service lines, he said that he didn't know that it was lead in his water or he doesn't exactly understand what's going on. So that's not to say, like, I'm glad that less service lines are being replaced. I think that a lot of organizers who worked around this are glad that it's being replaced. However, there's always work to be done and room to grow. And organizers or people shouldn't be shot down when people critique or question the things that our city and state officials do. But people really get testy when you're critiquing or questioning Black leaders, and that ties into uh, a Black liberal issue that that Newark and other cities and, and countries deal with. So, Amaris, what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt white supremacy? What's my privilege? I would say the first thing that I could think of is, is able-bodied privilege, that I'm able to speak to you right now, that I'm able to type or um, maybe go out and have more mobility than other people might have. So um, definitely thinking about how the water crisis affects people who have disability issues and they might not be able to speak up for themselves, but they're not as heard as somebody who is able-bodied or who can go to the court steps and charge officials. Um, So that's definitely one thing that I think about. And also, unfortunately, I am unemployed. But at the same time, like being unemployed or underemployed, I have more time to go out and do these things or to work as an organizer or to stretch myself. But sometimes it's hard because I don't have the money. But then when you get a job, I understand that people feel like I don't have time to organize because I'm working so much and I have so much to do for my family. I'm also a single person living with my parents. My parents are able to do for themselves. So that's a bit of my privilege and ways that I kind of uh, try to disrupt white supremacy, capitalism, and, and racism and sexism that we deal with in this city, in this country, in this world. My name is Eric Stamps. I'm born and raised down in Danville, Virginia. Um, right now, I've, I've been working on different political campaigns um, for the past couple of years. Um, right now, I'm a field director for, for Congressional Race. Um, you can follow me at, on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Eric Stamps. Um, you can also follow me on Facebook. as facebook.com slash the Eric Stamps. I'm also on Instagram. My handle is Eric Stamps VA. And uh, my pronouns are, are he and him. Obviously, we're living during a pandemic, a global pandemic. And so what's on a lot of folks' mind right now is health care. Uh, can we just talk a little bit more about the way that healthcare and environmental racism correlate? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's definitely intertwined. And if you've ever gone through or, you know, walked through an African-American neighborhood anywhere, one thing you can always notice on a lot of the doors, you'll see the uh, no smoking because oxygen is in use sign. Other things you can look at are how closely a lot of times these houses are together. If it's apartment complexes, it's you know, six to eight different units compacted into one space. And surrounding that are uh, plenty of environmental hazards. 
you know, dealing with like uh, electrical equipment, power stations, plants, uh, landfills, or just your, you know, lots of traffic, uh, things like that. So, you know, anytime you have a lot of people in a very small enclosed space, and there's also not a lot of nature, not a lot of trees, or it's just a concrete jungle, basically. And then also add on top of that, all the pollutants that are in the air that predominantly affect these areas. It's uh, going to lead to a, a huge catastrophe, especially related to healthcare. Um, we know that predominantly African-Americans have a high rate of uh, asthma, uh, especially find that amongst young people, really across the board, but it definitely affects black and brown people. And we know that with coronavirus, it affects the lungs. Your older individuals, you know a lot of them are on oxygen. Um, I'm sure a lot of us can can point to one or two people that we know personally that have to rely on oxygen. And uh, coronavirus, you know, it deals with the lungs, it affects that. And just going even further, you know, with you know, decades of uh, systematic racism, the fact that African-Americans have never been able to have adequate health care, you know, we don't have a national health care system, a single-payer health care. You're in a rural area like where I am in the county or even in the city of Danville. Uh, a lot of people don't like going to the hospital here because they just feel like it lacks the quality of care. So when you have that that mistrust of going to a local hospital here and also the lack of resources because rural hospitals have been shut down, not only in Virginia, but really all over the country over the past decade, it, it again, just, you know, leads to a huge catastrophe when you have a, a pandemic like this. And when you have those kind of problems and that mistrust and the fear of coronavirus, because a lot of us are seeing that people, they get, they get this, um, this disease uh, is predominantly affecting African-Americans. They may not go to a hospital if they feel sick. You know, we hear plenty of stories of people calling the healthcare provider and they have the symptoms, but they can't get a test. That's a problem. And we're also seeing now that people don't want to go to the hospital uh, if they have other problems. We're seeing an increase in folks dying from uh, cardiac symptoms or even having strokes. So um, I say all this to say that, you know, uh, all the disparities against uh, people of color, um, it, it just makes situations like this um, a lot worse. Can we get a little bit into the intersectionality, as you mentioned, of the disparities that folks, especially Black folks in Southside Virginia, Southwest Virginia, rural Virginia, might be facing in addition to health issues? Okay, yeah. So um, I'll point to I'll point to one area. Um, like in, in the Martinsville and Henry County area, there's a huge spike in African-American women that have breast cancer. That, and also... With that, there are also are not, there are not enough uh, physicians, healthcare providers to help those people that, that have to deal with that. Like back in 2014, there was a coal ash spill into the Dan River from uh, Duke Energy down in North Carolina. And since then, we've had a lot of problems with the water quality, though the government may say it's safe and legal. We all know that just because they say it's safe doesn't mean that it actually is. And especially with the administration that we have now lowering the EPA standards to, so companies can put more toxins into the water and also lowering the, the requirements for dealing with coal ash. Um, we know that when those pollutants get into the water, people predominantly they have to choose between drinking tap water or water out of plastic bottles, which also has problem. I say all that to say that with the you know just dealing with the the water situation here, and you just pointed to the high high cancer rates. 
among African-American women uh, getting breast cancer. Uh, it, it just shows how everything is interconnected. You have a lack of quality healthcare services, a high rate of people getting a certain disease, and then an environmental factor that most citizens, you know, we don't have any control over our water quality. You know, we just have to accept pretty much what comes out of the faucet. Everybody can't buy spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on filtration systems that can filter everything throughout your home. Even if you just consume bottled water, you still have to cook uh, and bathe with uh, the water that comes out of your sink. Lastly, on Race Capital, we like to ask our guests what their privilege is. So what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt white supremacy? Yeah, um, I think my privilege is that I'm one of the few political operatives, um, especially uh, Black political operatives in Southern Virginia. I tried to do my best to get more people involved in the political process uh, with the knowledge that I have. I'm someone that I I speak truth to power. I don't tow a certain party line or party message. My focus is focusing on the needs of the people and people first. And everything that I try to speak out for, you know, speak out for and advocate for, is predominantly going to benefit uh, African American people, um, everyone in the black and brown community. So I try my best to, uh, you know, use my knowledge and use my skills to help everyone. Especially in this time, I think it's going to take uh, any people with the type of knowledge that I have to really motivate folks. It's going to take mass movements to try and get things done that need to get done. Um, this coronavirus pandemic that we're dealing with are showing some, uh, all, the, all the terrible things that just go on in our society. You know, we have to do what we can to help each other out and, and band together um, because one of my fears with uh, us reopening all over the country is that it's going to you know, the death toll and everything is going to get out of the headlines. We're going to see scores of black and brown people dying from coronavirus. And, you know, because it's out of the headlines, a lot of folks are not going to care. Um, and, you know, we need to do what we can to band together and, and also do what we can to keep us safe. Because at this point, there's no help from the federal government. It's not too much help come from the state government. We have to help our own communities out. That's all for now. Live from Richmond, you're listening to Race Capital. So the way that them tears, they fell slow Roots and bruises so deep Found it hard to sleep Souls lost in the heat Pray to God to keep Fast forward to my pop He nodding geek Off the hair rise